This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. Kelly, what are we talking about this week? Well, this week we are welcoming Paul Vasile. He's a composer, teacher, musician, and was recently scheduled to join us in New York for our live event about uncertainty and ambiguity. But for the health of everyone involved, as everyone is practicing social distancing right now, that event was canceled, but we're really grateful that Paul was able to join us online and we're able to, to talk with him. So Paul, welcome. Thank you. It's Welcome, Paul. Paul, just by virtue of introduction, so that our listeners know a little bit about what you do, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing? For sure. I, I wear quite a few hats, and uh, it's an interesting and lively, creative life that I'm living at this point. So I work at Eden Theological Seminary here in St. Louis, which is where I am right now, mm-hmm. as the director of music. And that involves being part of this community's liturgical life, uh, serving as a musical leader. We have a wonderful choir, and it's uh, that kind of hub of our uh, musical life as a community is how I see what I do, and that includes working with and reaching out to our local community musicians as well. I am also working as the executive director of a small nonprofit called Music That Makes Community, I'm wearing my uh, my Music That Makes Community swag today, sing more, talk less. Um, <laughs> that's, that's our motto. Uh, we are looking for, actively looking for engaging spaces of community singing. How do we collectively sing, make music? How do leaders, not just those of us who have uh, training uh, or skill, but those of us who might not think we have training or skill show up? to spaces of leadership of, of song in particular in our communities. And that's not just the church, but outside as well. And then I uh, work for myself as a consultant. I do work with congregations, uh, often congregations that are in conflict or in some sort of crisis and shifting the, the kind of molting and of evolution right now of our communities of faith. And then finally, I am a composer. And what that means for me is, is I'm, I'm just thinking about what we need to be singing now and how I can, you know, think about theologically and musically ways to engage communities in music making that's meaningful. I've seen some of your you know, videos online and we've talked a little bit. Um, yeah. When you come into a community to bring people together in music, you do it in a little different way than you're not just handing out sheet music and teaching everybody a song. No, no, it's, it's actually really a practice of listening to the community. Uh, of course, I, I'd love to share and teach. That's, of course, part of the work. But I think actually one of the first jobs as a person coming into a community is to listen. So who's here? Where? What's their level of comfort? What do they know? What don't they know? How are they singing together? And really paying attention to some of those, I would call them more basic details, but they're sometimes intuitive, but they're I find them to be really important foundational uh, spaces. So, and from there, we can, I think, ask different kinds of questions. A friend of mine just recently said, 
part of what he, he has seen me doing is exegeting a community. Uh, that's a powerful way to think about it. I never framed it that way, but I'm going into to listen for the listen for the word that's there already, mm-hmm. trusting that God is the Spirit is already at work and moving, and my job is to pay attention to where that might be. Wow, that's interesting. Think about you're, you're unpacking a community and finding the, the the base code that's there. Yeah, I like that base code. So you um, you mentioned God or Spirit in that work. Can you tell us a little bit about your spiritual background? Yeah, I was a church kid, grew up in a very, very, I would say, pious home with parents who were faithful and loving and whose faith was framed by their conversion to a kind of a more evangelical form or um, manifestation of Christian faith. And so I grew up in a really Bible-centric but free church space, meaning like we didn't have a prayer book, we didn't do uh, things that were ritualistic, uh, though we did have liturgy, of course, but we were always in church. I mean, I spent three, sometimes four days a week, evenings or some part of a day in my faith community growing up from the time I was two, three years old until my teens. And then had a real interesting sort of change in my life when I you know, came out when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s and had to reconcile some deep, deep discomfort and dis-ease with what my community of origin said about who I was and what I was coming to understand God was saying to me about who I was. And so I've been on a journey of kind of both reconciling and evolving and learning and deepening, if I could say it that way. And it's it's never a journey that's over. It's, it's, it's constantly turning over like the soil. You know, you just keep, keep turning it over and new things grow. You know, when we first talked about having you come to New York for Radical Love Live, we have different themes for the different events. And when we started talking about doing a show or a program about uncertainty and ambiguity, mm-hmm. that was one that really appealed to you. What is about those topics that's attractive to you? Mm. This sounds strange, but living in the question is something that I, I actually feel is very faithful. That's a very faithful act to live in the question and not have to answer it. Very early in my, especially in my coming out time uh, in my early 20s, I had to sort of live in what felt like a no man's land. I, I had very little to guide me. I had, yes, faithful Christians on both sides of what felt like a theological and political divide saying, well, this is who you are. This is what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And and I really struggled with aspects of both of those those poles or extremes of good intention, loving people who said, we know better, Paul, Mm -hmm. than who you should be. And it was while reading a book of James Allison a uh, fantastic theologian. And he said, the eyes of God in Jesus are not eyes that know better than us who we should be, but they're eyes of a friend, of someone who's alongside us, staring even or looking into our eyes and wanting us to become our best version of ourselves. And that to me said that I could choose one or the other, or I could choose something like relationship, dance, uh-huh. um, negotiation, I mean, my life is not lived in the certainty that I know. 
my life right now and has maybe for a long time been lived, especially as an artist and a creative in an in-between, in the cracks kind of space. And again, to come to be comfortable with that and to claim that as holy is that's been a journey. <laughs> it didn't feel so holy yet. <laughs> not. So, um, Paul, on that note, I'm kind of curious, you know, because uh, our stories are somewhat similar in that vein of coming out. Was there, was there any trauma that you had out of that? What was that journey like? Or did you ever feel like you were in wilderness? Wow. Um, that's really interesting you should say that. I, I think that some of the, the trauma for sure was around a community of faith that had accepted me under certain terms and said, you're okay if you're not gay or if you don't act on these, this, this piece of your sexuality. Oh, you mean love the sinner, not the sin. Right. We, we've heard it often. And, and that to me felt, it felt like, um, a, a, like a devil's deal kind of a feeling. It, it didn't mm. feel like it really ever really could be lived out well. It was always, it was an, it was an invitation to fail. And I'm a perfectionist, so here we are. <laughs> but also, uh, I, I recognize that the work that I'm doing when I'm in a faith community is, is when I say spirit, again, it's listening. It's about paying attention. It's contemplative work, right? Mm -hmm. But that's put me back in touch with pieces of my work and my time as a, as a young Pentecostal and in experiences of moving a community from one place to another and watching that shuttling process happen and watching the Holy Spirit show up. And I'm wondering, whoa, whoa, what just happened here through song? An ecstatic or beautiful or profoundly moving experience. And I think, how did we get here? And, I, and it harkens back to a part of my earlier life of faith that I had kind of put in a little bit of a, you know, use the image closet or put cordoned off in a box and not wanted to look at again. Mm -hmm. Because in that closet was also some of the theological baggage and woundedness that, that I needed to look at. So it's been interesting to watch how both my liturgical contemplative life and my Pentecostal charismatic evangelical roots, how those two things have, have also been dancing and fusing and in relationship in new ways. Again, ambiguity, uncertainty, like it's not one is right, one is wrong, but are these things somehow connected or should they be connected? Has there been healing in that process? Mm. And if so, where did where did that come from? Yeah, the healing I think has has been for me personally in um, so for example in the work that I'm doing with congregations, coming alongside a community for a, for a period of time, you know, even three four months, and just being with them, shuttling them through, or I should say, accompanying them through an experience, and seeing how. I guess seeing and feeling both affirmation and feeling like I can trust what I'm doing and trust that something is happening that's bigger than me. And in some ways, the healing is coming through practicing living into this thing. It's, it comes when I, when I receive yes affirmation from people that say, great, you're doing a great job. You're wonderful. But it's deeper than that. It's when my soul says, wow, you're holding some things in you that this community is also struggling to hold. In some ways, it's noticing within myself that I'm not the only person who's holding these tensions. I'm not the only person who's holding these, these binaries or this, 
this need to be uh, certain or sure. When I embrace my own sort of insecurity and I invite others to embrace theirs, something starts to happen. I don't know, does that make sense? Very much so. And you, uh, you hit uh, one of the trigger words for me is binary. And that's really recent in my own kind of own space of, you know, considering what is that and really kind of breaking the, the binary aspect that I had and realizing mm-hmm. that it's so much more than that. Now, music lends itself naturally into that because it's, it's fluid and it's contemplative. And um, that's an important word because uh, binary uh, gives us a certain sense of knowledge or comfort or whatever. And when we're talking about a very this very topic of ambiguity and uncertainty, well, binary works so well, it kind of breaks it a bit, I think, right? Yep, it does. And yeah. the, the queering, and I, again, so here's another really interesting part of this journey. So maybe even one of the pieces of healing for me was, A, noticing how I was still embedded in some of those binaries myself. But also, I, I, I say I came out in kind of another, in another way. I came out again in a kind of second way as queer two and a half years ago. And part of that was framing that, wow, my life and my, my work and even the way that I manifest my relationships f- uh, physically and, and emotionally is richer and more yeah, complex right? than any of this can hold. So I'm going to just actually say, well, you know what? Let's let's live in a way that's in the cracks, and let's yeah. let's claim that it. as part of part of who and how this work is 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 lived out. To be sure, you know, I'm of a certain age, so when I hear the word queer, uh, there are a lot of folks in my age bracket that really have a strong reaction to it, and I did too for many years. And so, I personally do lean in on that word though, because um, uh, not to take away from the the letters that we use to identify, but queer to me actually. It's fine. It works. It's great, you know, because it it doesn't require description or something specific. It just simply allows me to be who I am in that space, in that ambiguity, and just you know, and allow me to love myself as I am, in the best possible way that I can be. To back to your point about what you were saying about trying to be the best person I can be, as I'm called to be, yes. uh, as the as the divine, as I refer to, would want uh, would want me to be. And so therefore, if I can do that, then I can do with others. So it's my thoughts on that. Mm, appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. On that, that term also does a great job of defying those that would police your identity. Because mm. there's a lot of that. There are a lot of identity police awesome. all along mm. the spectrum of experience where people say, you have to be just like this. And those binaries show up in strange places. Yep. It's great to see people identifying themselves and just being like, I am who I am and it's a fluid identity and it, it becomes very hard for other people to police that, but it's, it seems like it's very freeing. It's really liberative and it's actually liberative and it's, it's intimidating. Also, I've noticed to folks who really do need or who have hold, or are holding and in the church, as I see it in this molting, transforming time, there's tension there, right? And I will say, uh, I mean, I'm, I am a church musician. I'm a classically trained organist, pianist, choral conductor, right? So I have all of those pieces of my musical training to back me up. 
But in some funny ways, my calling has asked me not to press forward or lead forward with those as my primary identity, but to lean forward into more pastoral ways of music making. Mm-hmm. With all of that still in the background, or maybe not even in the background, but somewhere floating in between the foreground and the background, it's less about what I can do and and how I need to show you my capability in my work, so much as what can we do? What are we made for together around our musical identity and our worship together or our sense of belonging to each other? And I've, I've been really shocked by some classical musicians who say, oh, well, you're that paperless music guy. You, <laughs> you know, all you, all you do is work with people around oral tradition learning. You don't care about the, the, the music or the notes on the page. And, and my heart breaks because I think, no, I care a lot about the notes on the page and making them rich and beautiful. But so few of us have a relationship with the notes on the page. We see it as outside of us, as disembodied. And I would hope that we could actually take it in and, and digest it and, and own it and love it and pray it, not just keep it at a sort of distant sort of comfortable safe space i guess we're getting to the question what do i do or what's my passion it's it's getting folks to or getting folks it's inviting folks to engage in singing as a spiritual practice so singing as a way of drawing us more deeply into into mystery into beauty into love into even longing and desire all those things are really powerful and important in our, in our human lives, rather than curating an experience for folks that is, you know, managed the way that I need, need it to be managed. I was just going to ask about um, liturgy, because I know that the idea of liturgy comes up and is a through line in your work, and that liturgy, for some, can seem like this very rigid, regimented thing, mm-hmm that you have to do everything exactly the right way. And it seems like liturgy would be in competition with this kind of free, more free-spirited expression of music. So I wonder for you what the relationship is between those two. You know, it was really interesting. I, uh, when I, during my sort of years of real searching and I, again, figuring it out, I went from going, uh, from going regularly to a Assemblies of God church uh, <laughs> to going to Church of the Advent in Boston, which is an Anglo-Catholic Episcopal church in which incense shows up everywhere and it's theatrical and it's florid and it's, it's glorious. And I found ways that my body and my soul could show up in that space that it couldn't show up in the Assemblies of God space. And in some interesting, funny way, I don't know exactly what it was about that encounter, but liturgy is not, um, it's not a static thing. It's not something that just lives on the page. It lives because we make it alive, the human beings that are there. And now, don't get me wrong, the officiants matter in that, are doing our job well, and with good leadership matters. But it's noticing that the challenge in liturgical structures or spaces where yes, things are prescribed or ordered in a certain way is how do we move that experience more towards an embodied, alive, 
fluid flowing experience. And in some ways I would say to the same, to my kin in charismatic circles, I would say, yeah, you've got a lot of spirit and you've got a lot of love, a lot of energy flowing here, but is there a way that you might think to, to put these ideas together in a way that could hold some of the complexity and the richness of, of what, uh, what I find a classic liturgical space might hold? I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to tease this out a little bit, but liturgy matters because we do it together. And so the question then is, is how do we do it together well in our context? How does music become part of the, the energy that shuttles us from one thing to the other in an experience? But, but more than anything, how does the, the participatory nature of it hold the fullness of who we are as humans? Um, not just one sliver of our emotional or spiritual identity or life, but a kind of a richer and fuller textured sort of life. So you do these marvelous things. You work with these people within this group. So you've got them there saying, yeah, we're, we're interested. And now you're going to work with them. Walk us through how that happens. What is that like? Mm. What's that experience? One of the very first things that we do is we connect to our voices and we do that through what I would call basic or, or elemental practices of singing and learning together. So for me, the, the grounding space, and this is the, the fun of my work, is using these oral tradition learning and teaching tools that, that I've received so wonderfully from my colleagues in this work to help communities experience their voice together. So it starts with action and the action is making something together and often making something together without paper, simply because it mediates a different experience and it allows us to be more sensorily attuned or, or aware. And after an experience, say perhaps, let's say, we, let's say we have a 20 minute morning prayer in which we experience singing, we collect uh, reading of scripture, prayer, sending, blessing, and on we go without any paper. And folks have an experience of something alive and something, again, we're learning and making together. And then we'll stop. And we'll, before we even make introductions or say, hi, I'm Paul, I'll say, friends, what did you notice? And invite folks to begin to tap into the wisdom that comes from our contemplative knowing, from our, our tapping into our seeing and hearing and sensing selves, rather than our reading, analyzing, judging, fixing selves. Even inviting the discomfort and saying, saying you know, friends, if, if you felt uncomfortable with what we were doing, if you struggled, that actually is a welcome piece of noticing and experience. And so what I notice is that, and I know this, is, this maybe sounds rather abstract, but by gradually stepping people into these practices of experiencing and reflecting on their music making and also on the texts that they're singing. So I'll do this with a hymn. We'll learn, I've done this with several congregations with the gorgeous settings of, um, there's a wideness in God's mercy. And I think it's 377 and 378 in the Episcopal hymnal. One is the setting that every congregation has been singing for the last, you know, how many years since the hymnal is, you know, since 1981. Yeah. And the second is the Calvin Hampton setting, which fewer congregations know well. And if they know it, it's hard. It's difficult. It looks hard on the page. It doesn't have 
you know, bar line <laughs> in the same way, right? And so we'll, we'll reflect, we'll experience the text in one setting, but then we'll experience it in a second setting and we'll pay attention to how we're hearing the text. What are the words that Calvin Hampton is inviting us to pay attention to here? What's the melody and the shape of that melody offering for what words get emphasized and feel like they're conjuring up an image, right, of what this sea, this rolling sea of God's love might be. And Calvin Hampton does it stunningly. And it's not one is better and one is worse. It's that these both hold wisdom for us. They both hold a powerful way of knowing um, God and knowing love in two different forms. So if I'm making sense, it's like I'm starting to help people, if I could, kind of like attune themselves to meaning, what, the meaning of what we sing and say, but that the music, the, the robe that we put on that text matters. How we sing and what we sing really matter. It's not just pitch data. And composers, and I think church musicians, make very intentional and often loving choices about what settings they want to offer their congregation, but with very little not explanation because I don't want to be explaining, but with very little evocation or invitation to the community to, to, to deepen its relationship. And so that's where I see my role. It's kind of as this interloper. So, hey, we, we have this beautiful piece of music and then there's our experience of it together. What bridge can I build between those two things mm. so that that then piece of music becomes prayer and it nourishes and nurtures our spiritual life. One of the, the things that, that we've talked about through our entire podcast series and our live series and everything is getting to what spirituality means and, and in some cases uncoupling it from its traditional religious trappings because there are some people who see the two as necessarily lockstep together and some see them as overlapping. When you are leading a community and getting them in touch with the spiritual. How do you define that undefinable thing that is spirituality? It, it feels to me like, again, it's, it's tapping into something that's bigger than all of us. I mean, music is so universal. It, it's so at the core of the human experience and the human being. We've been, you know, attuned to sound most of us, uh, I imagine those of us who have had hearing loss or impairments might be an exception, but still we feel vibration um, in our bodies. So we're bodied people, but it's, it's, I don't know. I feel, I feel sometimes like this work is inviting people into the mystery of, of sound and also not just my sound, but the sound we somehow are able to make together um, the biggest sense of our, our sounding body. That could be a congregation, that could be a quartet, that could be the planet, that could be the universe that's a sounding body. It's, it's the scope and the scale of it that I think we're, we sometimes get hung up on. But we're, I don't know, I feel like we're, when we're making music, when we're practicing singing, we're hitching into something, we're hitching onto something that's already at work or already moving in the universe. It's nothing we're creating ex nihilo. It, it is already there and we're just joining in with it. And so that feels in some ways like it's ineffable. It's, it's undescribable. It's bigger than all of us. 
So Paul, um, one of the other things that we do here at Radical Love Live is we invite uh, people in to the conversation that are on the entire spectrum of spirituality. So this of course includes ones that we use the phrase nuns and duns and spiritual but not religious, which you know eventually we'll get past those phrases. But the point is the people that you know simply don't engage, right? For whatever reason. Could you do this with that segment? I no question. I remember one time I won't go into the details, but I was invited by, uh, by an executive in a global NGO based in downtown New York to come to lead a song for uh, their international gathering uh, leaders. And this was not a Christian or even a remotely spiritual space. So I was asked to bring something that could hold us as a community and I remember, I think it was, uh, was it, is it Lena Guobi? She was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And she was a Liberian peace activist. And I wrote a short call and response song based on a, a text of hers. And I'm so, so sorry that I'm not remembering it right now. It's kind of gone out of my brain. But I walked into the room and I remember... I came in and the air was very thick with something that was happening. There was something moving in the space and I wasn't sure of what it was, but I just sat, I listened. And then she looked over at me and she said, well, let's sing. And we did. And this body of people from around the world sang this song. We learned it together. We made it together. We moved even our bodies and, and experienced it kinesthetically. And then afterwards, she emailed the next day. She thanked me. She emailed me the next day and she said, I don't know if you realize, but we were in the heart of a very hard and difficult conversation when you came in. And that experience of singing was something that moved the group from one place to the other. It shuttled us in our group process to a helpful kind of cleansing the palate, getting us into a new space but also giving us a shared experience of collaboration that we really needed. And I said, okay, whoa, whoa. So this isn't just about what's happening in church. This is about the human story. This is about what I think we're all longing for in some deep way. And that's the sense of connection, of care, uh, again, of mutuality. We make this together. And that feels deeper even, if I could, than spirituality. It feels deeply human, or maybe not deeper, but accompanying and alongside how we make meaning in our spiritual lives. And my, my, my hope, I guess my prayer in this work is, is that we don't unhitch our humanity from our spirituality, that, that woven deep into the human being, as mysterious and unknown as we are to even ourselves and our brains, that we notice again and again that singing is one of those things that just keeps keeps reminding us deeply what it means to be human. Uh, and so maybe that's that's where I would hope we could start in these conversations about spirituality. What em emboldens, what enlivens, what enriches the human being's life? And that is a piece of, of faith, of spirituality. I don't something I want to hold on to and not miss. You could have brought a song into that community, right? That group that was already done, right? 
Yeah. That's not what you did though. Do you build a song? Did they build that song together? Is that how that works? No, it's really interesting. It, I, I'm remembering it was a call and response song, which meant I would offer some words and then folks would offer their assent to what I had offered. So in some interesting way, it's a pattern of reinforcement. We see it in liturgy all the time. You know, it's the Lord be with you and also with you. So we, you know, we have these patterns built into our, our lives as humans. And we think, well, what, what happens if we sing that way? All of a sudden, we're in a dialogue. All of a sudden, we're, we're partnered. We're, we're making something. And I need you for it to work. Uh, yeah. I need you. And so, yes, in some ways, they weren't improvising. They weren't making up new words with me in the song. We weren't co-composing. Mm-hmm. But if I could say this, I, I offered them a structure, a musical structure that, mind you, shows up in multitude of cultures, where I, as a leader, was part of helping make, make an us. That's our co-participation. But, so basically... When I sing in the shower or wherever I sing, horribly, that's not a call and response at all. It's just listening to what I hear and singing to whatever it might be. Whereas, as you said, in this case, the call, the response, the dialogue that was happening. And so, therefore, there was this, this, like, this conversation now taking place. And, and, and even now, and I, I want to say, and I just want to name this reality that we're in right now with needing to worship in this online space. I have been involved in some very simple services, but what has been most meaningful for us musically has been that kind of sense of call and echo or call and response. That even if we aren't all together in the same space and can hear each other, we can see each other's mouths move. Uh, We can be aware that there are others on this call who are also going to participate with me. There's a kind of a group normativeness that starts to show up. And uh, gosh, it's really been surprisingly meaningful to me to worship in spaces like, like this. And we're going to be, unfortunately, it seems here for a while. But how we continue to use these kinds of patterns and practices to make meaning, even in a pandemic, seems really important and we need to be maybe even more now exploring ways in which we can can be with each other even if digitally totally it reminds me of uh well songs how they communicate right the call and response yep right so paul are you finding that technology is is helping you with with this work now that we're sort of physically apart but needing to still Mm -hmm. stay connected There'll be challenges. And I I think the challenge I notice is us stepping into the digital space without checking in, without honoring the sort of beautiful but ordinary dialogue and interactions that we have when we're in a space with others. We've been trying to, in the gatherings that we've been having with Music That Makes Community, do, you know, internal weather checks. Um, We've been trying to provide spaces for breathing, for just restful being together, even if digitally. The, the challenge for me is, is that when we go right into a meeting and it's business, 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 get it done, get it done, some piece of us isn't showing up there that might be invited to show up where we all together. But I'll tell you, we've got a treasure trove of videos and audio online. People are going to our website. They're watching videos. They're being very deeply, it seems, nourished and 
I've, I've had a lot of gratitude expressed to worship leaders who are having to, to quickly figure out some things. Um, that's one of our jobs as Music Get Makes Community in particular is to be a resource and resource for leaders and for music making. But I think it's going to require some even further experimentation and exploration around new models or I don't know, new tools. I would hope even new platforms. I love Zoom, but it's really hard to sing together uh, on Zoom. Uh, if you've, you've tried it, it's, it's, I see your faces telling me, yes, you've tried it and it's, it's, it's awkward. I will hope that all the work that we're doing now of working to stay connected and working to still keep singing and music part of what we're offering to people in, in digital space is going to make our being back together again even more profound and meaningful. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think of this kind of difficulty as a, as a good thing or as a tool. It's not, it's a, it, it's, it's a painful experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering and curious what this experience is gonna teach us about how much we do need each other's voices and bodies as we come together for a ritual of all sorts, you know, in worship and liturgy, or even just on the playground or in any place that humans gather. No, to be sure. You know, you think about it, so many of us from baby boomers into Gen X, Gen Y, millennial, Gen Z, you know, alpha generation, all the different labels we describe uh, people in their different stages of life. Uh, a lot of us have not known war or, or something as dramatic of what is about to unfold for us. Yeah. So this is uncharted territory combined with the fact that we're now truly a global civilization in so many different respects. And, and yet we have all of these dis- disparate elements to us and we have fracturing taking place and, you know, just at so many different levels. And like you said, just to your point, is it something like this that is, as consequential as this is going to be for us because it is going to make change. Yeah. There's going to be suffering inside of this. Mm. Where's the hope inside of this? What, what does this look like? Where can we already look, you know, if we get our, our glasses of hope on and go, what, what good will come from this? Mm. What can we learn from this? Mm. The, the slowness and intentionality that I'm beginning to notice in uh, our leaders, the breathing in and breathing out, the weirdness, the, the emptiness of schedules that are blank and that invite us to yeah. imagine where's my heart drawn? Where does my energy live and reside? when no one's telling me what to do with my time or when it's free or open, what will I make just because I want to make it? But I also am seeing in some other ways, a spirit of, of, of some, not just mutuality, but this wovenness, we are really connected. We need each other to survive. And that, that Hezekiah Walker song, I love so much. I need you to survive. We're woven into this community in deep, deep, deep ways. And our sense that a friend of mine said today, if you're ever in a place where you, you're stuck, know that I'm here. I'm with you. What I have is yours. And I thought that offered me a, a, a great comfort 
if I were to even have to receive the gift, if my resources came to an end and, and I had to come to a friend and say, hey, I'm stuck, to know that there, there's a depth of love and care that I am held in and held by in my community, that's, that's powerful. And I, I think that is transformative. I, I hope it's helping me realize that I'm more than I do and I'm more than I make. <laughs> and, and, and that's a hard lesson to learn. And it's a hard thing to, to trust sometimes. I guess that's what they call faith, right? Speaking of, of the challenge of, of ambiguity and of unknown, right? <laughs> Which is where I'm going with the question. Um, one of the things that Kelly and I have learned in our conversations uh, with other guests is that some feel like we're being hopeless or that we're not giving enough hope. And I don't hear that out of you. You're, I don't want to put that word in you, but it sounds like you're very hopeful. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's hope. There's hope here. A friend of mine said today, another, the same friend, who's, she's a wise and, and brilliant theologian. She said, it's sometimes we have to put some things on the compost bin to see new life. There's a sense in which some things are going to have to die for some other things to grow. And that is, yes, in some ways, a hopeful act, death or the breaking down of something to become the fuel for something else to grow, that's hopeful. Um, but if what's breaking down is what I know and love or what's disintegrated is, is my job or my sense of purpose, that, that's another thing. And that there are deeper pieces of, of, of spiritual and internal process that we're all facing. Um, so I do think that, yes, as much as I will say I'm hopeful, I have a deep hunch that these next months, these even these next years are going to be full of grief work. They're going to be full of, of loss and longing for maybe what, what we knew. And maybe they already are. I mean, you, you hang out with folks in the, in, at least in mainline churches enough to know there's all this sort of still nostalgia for what the church might've been in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. To some, yes. To some. And surely that's not, the, that's not the reality anymore. And I think that this experience is going to even more rapidly push some of the decline of, of, the, of our well-known and well-heeled structures. It's going to ask for some other kinds of being together. And yes, is that hopeful? Absolutely. Is something new coming? Absolutely. But we're going to have to accompany people through the grief. Uh, and we're ourselves going to have to tend our own grief. Well said, well said. And so is this not where music and making music of the, from the heart is, uh, serves that purpose? That's right. We're going we're gonna to learn how to keen. We're going to learn how to lament. We're, we're going we're gonna to moan and wail together. And that is holy and important and, and profound work that we're going we're gonna to invite folks into as we move forward, I think. Can you enlighten a little bit more about lamentation? Because um, that's a word that I think scares a lot of people, or they simply don't know what it means. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's a it's a kind of living in, or it's exploring the texture of the less comfortable spaces of our lives. It's kind of giving some meaning to the places that we don't want to really necessarily pay much much attention to. 
I, I think about lament as a conversation. Um, lament to me isn't just sitting in the sadness and, and uh, woe is me, poor me. That is some piece of, of lament. And yeah, there are some Psalms, I'm sure, as we look at them, at least that speak in that way. But more fundamentally, I see lament as a, as a conversation and even an angry conversation at times or an imploring conversation with, with the universe. Why? Why is this happening? How could you let this happen? And to, again, speaking to this question of uncertainty and unknowing and to, to maybe not hear an answer and that our focus maybe doesn't always need to be on asking why or how, but simply letting what we are feeling healthily and organically move through us. I, I yesterday was angry. I don't know where that anger was coming from, but I knew it was there. I could feel my body was holding some something. And so I went for a long walk and I knew that I needed to kind of be in touch with that anger. And, um, and a, a song started to grow in my, in my writing and walking. And the first line of it is, uh, may my anger be a friend I can talk with. It, and I started to think about all the other negative or negative emotions that I might want to have a conversation with and sit down and not hide from. And I think that's a piece of what we're talking about with lament, not needing to fix it, but just being in dialogue, being in a, in a relationship with the things that are, that are not maybe easy for us to be in relationship with. And as you said in the song that you were going to play this, this weekend is going through that process of waiting yep. and understanding what, the learnings and the growth that happen while you're simply waiting. That's a, that's an Advent song that uh, came. It's, you know, I don't know who you are. I barely know who I am. All I know is I am here looking for a glimpse of you, listening for the sound of you waiting. And that to me is again rooted. We talked about it earlier, but the contemplative practice of just practicing being in the moment, being with yourself, being with, with whatever it is that's moving through without having to judge it or fix it. But again, and so for me, music is connected to that spiritual practice of holding those feelings and not having to fix them, but letting them do their work on us. You just saying that reminded me, it sounded very much like a prayer of uh, Thomas Merton. Speaking of great contemplatives, it's uh, it's a prayer of I I have no idea, <laughs> basically, and, and yet <laughs> I love how you just immediately went there, and and you know it shows that music really can be a contemplative spiritual practice just as much as leaning in on a Merton uh, prayer or you know reading uh, anything he's written or any of the other contemplatives. This is a different form, but it's still they serve a common goal and purpose in us. Uh, you know, reconciling to ourselves and to our world around to uh, us and the divine and asking and being okay with, I don't know. I'm really heartened by, by Cynthia Bourgeau and, you know, Richard Rohr and others. Um, Cynthia in particular has, has uh, practices or practices of chanting that I think are showing up in her gatherings and her yes. work. There's a very specific way that she does it. That uh, that's a, it's a little prescribed. That, that's just my personal opinion, but, but it is. 
exactly this. It's being with your breath, it's being with your body, your voice, but the voices of others holding that space together. And also preparing to hold silence together. Which is a very uncomfortable thing for folks to do. (laughs) Absolutely. But one of my mentors, Alice Parker, who is, I I don't know what to call her. She is a whole musician in, in the richest, fullest sense of her identity as a composer, teacher, uh, mentor. She says there's a very big difference between what she calls an empty silence and a full silence. And, and those of us who have done work with singing and silence or singing and contemplative prayer recognize that there is a very different empty space of silence, but then a full silence. And I, I love that, noticing that difference and paying attention to the quality of a silence even. Thank you for that. That's a great way of putting a great framework around that. That's new to me. And certainly I think for our listeners as well to really kind of look at spaces, it does not have to be empty. It can actually be full. Mm-hmm. I love that. One of the things that we've been asking all of our guests lately is what do you think that the future of spirituality looks like? As I look at the work that Music That Makes Community is doing in particular in more and more community spaces that are not specifically even faith-oriented spaces. For me, the future of spirituality looks like community practicing together. Um, It looks like embodied action and reflection. It looks like something that is, might I even say, less even specifically oriented around Jesus or around a single spiritual teacher, so much as a body of wisdom or teachers who are wise and the many, many wisdom traditions which we're connected to. I think it's less individual, it's more communal, it's shared. That's my hope. I mean, I I think the thing that, that is at the core of it is practice. Spirituality that is practiced in concrete, and intentioned ways. That feels so important to, to what I hope and pray we're moving towards collectively and, and even in our, our Christian tradition. Wow, thank you. That's, I love that vision. I love that. You can see the sparkle in your eye as you're looking hopefully forward. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share in this way, in this particular way. I, I think it's really interesting that When I first began my work as a musician in churches, I had no idea that it would intersect so deeply with theology. There's been such richness in the ways that musicianship, theology, spiritual practice, all these things have danced together. And I would say also with gratitude to the teachers and the mentors that I've encountered along my journey who have helped frame this for me in ways that have been really instructive. And could I say this even to really integrating and holistic? That is perhaps one of the greatest gifts I've been given is I heard a, someone say once that we're, we're seeing the world, but we're seeing it as if almost as if our teachers are all behind us and we're seeing through this collective set of eyes forward. I I feel very blessed that I I have been gifted to see through the eyes of many wise and thoughtful people who have invited me to show up and, and now make invitations to others. It's not what I hold. It's what 
we hold, and that even means our ancestors and our, our collective sense of, of who we are together. Thank you, Paul, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We hope that we can get you out here to New York sometime when things are a little more normal, or if not normal, then whatever whatever it'll be transformed into whatever uh, the next thing is yes absolutely because we'd love to see you in person but thank you it's, it's great to see you online thank you and likewise i i will pray for your safety and your well-being for you your families and for for all who are affected right now and just um keep holding holding this space and uh grateful for the work you're doing thank you for keeping the cathedral sort of plugged in but also curating things that feel alive and important now that unfinished building has such huge gifts to give just i I always go into the cathedral and i'm like wow it's not finished yet and (laughs) that's the point right in some beautiful way that's become the point of the building is it's not finished yet and (laughs) and may it never be finished (laughs) always a work in progress always yeah it's like what we are (laughs) like us all yeah yes paul thank you so much blessings thank you you. and blessings to you both we'll talk soon Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series, on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at RadicalLove.Live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Mm-hmm.